John chapter 19. This morning we're going to, <clears throat> Lord willing, finish out chapter 19, looking at the crucifixion. Um, I think as, as we get to John 19 here, we should put our finger there and then flip back to John chapter 1. And as we <clears throat> look at the death of Christ here today, or as I titled the lesson, how did I word that? The Lamb is Slain. My notes, I had something different written. Um, but in John chapter 1 and verse 29, we saw John the Baptist introducing Jesus, and he says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So at the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is introduced in chapter 1 as the Word, as the Word of God, as the light. He is introduced by, the, well, then John the Apostle records John the Baptist introducing him as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And what we have in chapter 19 here is the Lamb being sacrificed for our sin, the lamb being slain. So this morning we're going to look at these verses here and then look at some Old Testament prophecies <clears throat> that were fulfilled in John 19 here. But as we begin reading in verse 23, it says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. <clears throat> now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. The first thing we see here this morning is his belongings. I put a picture of a duffel bag because it's small. It only holds so much stuff. And as we look at the life of Jesus, you don't, you get the idea he didn't have a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I get the idea that really the only thing of value he had was his clothes. He went about without home, without, um, <clears throat> I mean, if, if you think about it, some of you have helped me move. You know there's a lot of boxes and a lot of furniture, and um, I've got a lot of books. I finally got smart, and when we moved this last time, I put books into small boxes. It meant more boxes, but I could actually carry the boxes without a dolly. <laughs> last time I moved, I put them in big boxes. That wasn't smart. Um, but we have a lot of things that hold us down in this life. We can have a lot of possessions. Jesus didn't have much. Now, his coat here, or his, um, his coat here isn't the way we think of a coat, as in a jacket that we'd put over, but the coat is the main clothes that someone would have, a man would have during this time period, and women as well. These are the, this is the garment that was closest to your body. This is the robe that um, hung over your body, covering you, um, it's often referred to as a tunic. 
something interesting about Jesus' tunic or his coat. Notice they took the first part, they took his other parts of his clothes, um, I suppose his mantle that hung over, over his coat, over his tunic. Um, they took that, they divided it into four parts, and um, they split it up. But then it says they took <clears throat> his coat or his tunic, and it says that it was without seam, woven from the top throughout. <clears throat> this is unique for this time period because usually, well, their, their looms were very small. And so usually a tunic would be made in two parts. They'd make the top half, the bottom half, and then they would sew them together around, I suppose, maybe around the waist. I don't know. They said, I, I had done some reading about this a couple years ago, and they said that they would actually sell the tunics at the market with no, no, no room for your neck to go through in order to prove that it was a brand new tunic. So you would show up at the, at the shop and you would buy your tunic, you'd pick one out that would fit, and there were two slits on the side for your arms to pop out, but there wasn't the hole for your head. And so they would cut the hole right there. They said that women's, um, the, the hole on, for women would often be embroidered um, to, I guess, be more decorative and pretty. But like I said, there was that seam halfway up. <clears throat> well, it says here that Jesus had no seam, his coat, his tunic. And that's interesting because the, um, the larger loom that would create a robe that was one piece of fabric, wasn't invented until the time of Christ. So this was a very new fashion that Jesus was wearing. It was a very, um, it would have been costly, which is one reason why they're not going to cut it up. They want to preserve this. This is a nice tunic, <clears throat> a nice robe here. And so they want to preserve this nice um, tunic without cutting it up. So verse 24 says, they said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. So they're going to gamble for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith they parted my raiment among them. And for my vesture, they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now let's look at the Old Testament, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 and verse number 18 is what John was quoting from here. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. So they take Jesus' clothes, they split them up <clears throat> four ways, but then they take his tunic and they... Um, they're going to cast lots for that. Well, let's keep going. First, we see his belongings. Secondly, at the cross, we see his beloved. Verse 25, now therefore stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, <clears throat> Mary, the wife of um, Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Now, who's the disciple that Jesus loved? Of course, it's John. John referred to himself 
frequently in this way. So he looks at his mother and says, woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. So he's caring for his mother here. He's making sure before he dies that she's cared for. And this is really powerful, that hanging on the cross, Jesus is honoring his mother. He's seeing that, um, that she has a home, that she has someone to provide for her. It's interesting, he doesn't trust his brothers to do this. He entrusts her to the disciple John, who was a, obviously a caring, loving, gentle man, one that would lean on Jesus' chest as they're having the Last Supper. I mean, he's someone that he knows is really going to nurture and care for his mother. It's also going to delay the ministry of John because this is his first responsibility given by Christ. So he's going to take care of Mary. And it's not until Mary dies that he's going to go out and um, begin planting churches and strengthening churches that were already planted. And so he's going to live to be, I suppose for sure, the eldest disciple. Um, He's going to live the longest. And um, anyway, my dad always referred to him as a hard-boiled preacher. Because, you know, tradition says that they um, tried to boil him. Uh, The Romans did. They put him in a pot of boiling oil, and that didn't kill him. And anyway, that's why they sent him to the Isle of Patmos, apparently, is because since they couldn't kill him, they thought they would, you know, put him off somewhere on an island with rats and um, prisoners, and we'll just send him off there and get rid of him since we can't kill him. So anyway, so my dad's always referred to him as John the hard-boiled preacher. But um, here Jesus is turning the care of his mother over to John. And if you look back in, well, real quick, before we look over at Psalm 22, I think this is significant for us to note for one reason, because of some of the comments that Jesus made earlier in his ministry that some people use to try to justify dishonoring parents. You know, when he said, um, she showed up to see him, and they said, oh, your mother's here. He's like, who is my mother? You know, and then he said, if you don't love me more than, uh, if you don't hate parents, and and he lists all these people. Um, And so some people say, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, it's okay to dishonor your mother. Jesus is saying it's okay to hate your family. Um, And those things can um, can be taken and twisted. But we see here, Jesus was caring for his mother. And if you look back in Psalm 22, which we talked about this a couple years ago when we went through the Psalms, but in Psalm 22 and verse 9, we see Jesus thinking about something. As Psalm 22 is prophetic of the crucifixion, I really think that it's true what um, J. Vernon McGee said, that Psalm 22 it's telling us what was on Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross. And I I really think that's accurate. As you go through Psalm 22 and you compare it to the sayings of Christ on the cross, some of the sayings are word for word found in Psalm 22. Others, it's like it gives you what he was thinking when he said what he said. And part of that is listed right here 
in Psalm 22 and beginning at verse number 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, as he's thinking, praying to the Father, thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So as he's hanging on the cross and as he begins to think about his mother's womb, his um, nursing from his mother, as he's thinking about these things, he looks down and here's his mother. Perhaps her standing there is what makes him think these thoughts that are prophesied in Psalm 22. Whatever the case, as he's on the cross and he's thinking about the woman who bore him, he is making sure that she's cared for. So he's giving John a responsibility and he's giving care to his mother. Number three, we get away from the bees for a minute. Um, Number three, I called this part his depletion. Depletion means to use up the supply of something. It means to drain. It means to empty. And I think that at this point on the cross, we find Jesus physically drained, physically emptied. Because look what we find in verse 28. After this, after he had made sure his mother was cared for, after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. We find him saying, I thirst. Now, this is really unique that John would record this, because in John chapter 4 and verse number 7, we found Jesus with the woman in Samaria, the woman of Samaria, the, the well of Sychar, and what does he tell her in verse number 7? There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. And in verse number 10, we find that Jesus said, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it was that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Verse 13, whosoever drinketh of this water shall never, um, sorry, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, I understand that here Jesus is talking about spiritual water. But nonetheless, we have the living water, the one who fed thousands miraculously, is hanging on the cross saying, I thirst. We find the Messiah, the living water himself, the great I am, the bread of life, the way, the truth, the living water is thirsty. He has emptied himself. He is to the point, he's probably by this point dehydrating because, I mean, who knows how long it's been since he drank, perhaps the Lord's Supper Um, when he drank the wine there with his disciples, perhaps that was the last time he's had anything to drink. And so it's been a long time. He's been through a trial. He's been up all night. He's been beaten. 
he's been crucified, and as he's hanging on the cross, he finally comes to this point of saying, I thirst. And if you look back in Psalm 22 again, and verse number 14, David prophesied these words of Christ, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Notice it didn't say broken, just out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. So he makes the comment here early in this passage, I'm poured out like water. And then he says, my strength is dried up. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust, notice, dust of death. He is dry. He is Um, He has just poured everything out. So spiritually, he's dying in our place. He's dying to be our sacrifice for sin. He's dying in our place on the cross. He has become our sacrifice. The Lamb of God is taking away the sin of the world here on the cross. But he is physically poured out, physically depleted. And then he says in verse 29, Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar. And they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. So they take this, they soak it, they stick it up to Jesus' lips. And in verse 30, it says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Notice here, it doesn't say they killed Jesus. They crucified him. The word killed is used in other plays. I believe it's in the book of Acts. It's referred to as you killed Jesus is a statement that was made. But um, we cannot use killed in the same way that we might use it when someone else is murdered. Um, Somebody takes a gun, pulls it out, shoots somebody else. We say they killed them. But here, Jesus, it says, gave up the ghost. He bowed his head. He said, it is finished. It's obvious that he is bringing a conclusion to this. Who is it that holds life in his hand? John chapter 1 said he was the creator of all things. Um, Colossians, he's the sustainer of all things. By him, all things consist. You and I only have life. We only have breath because Jesus Christ is giving it to us right now. And when he says it's over, and, and that's one reason why we can come to real peace when someone dies, is resting in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. He's a powerful God, and he could stop death, but he can also just take life. And um, I mean, that brought us so much peace when my sister was killed. Um, there were so many things about the circumstances that we could have we could have questioned. There were things that we did have to question. But when it came down to it, 
there was the fact that life is in the hands of God. And so we just chose to believe it was my sister's time to go to heaven. And as my dad has often said, um, he doesn't think that's the way God intended, but it was her time. It was the intended time. Um, my, my dad would also say around that time, he said, the only way I can keep my sanity is to believe that God is in control and that this is God's timing. Um, and we, we see this more so here with the life of Christ, that here he is, he is dying, he is giving up the ghost, and he is saying, this is the end. It is finished. Glenn? Taketh my life from me, but I give it up of myself. Yep. So what was that? John chapter 15, maybe? Maybe earlier than that, <clears throat> where Jesus had said, those of you who are listening online, um, Jesus had said that no man taketh my life. I give it freely. And so Jesus is giving his life here. It's not being taken from him. <clears throat> he is being crucified, Yes. The word killed is used later in the New Testament, yes, but it is not being taken. He is giving it freely. And let's flip back over to Psalm um, 22 again. <clears throat> Did I ever change this? We're looking at his decease now. Um, Psalm 22 and verse 31. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. He's talking about future generations of Christians, people who believe in Christ and declare what Christ has done. Preach the cross to the next generation and the generation after that. So what, what would belie future believers this is the joy, you know, in Hebrews, he said Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? Well, part of it was being at the right hand of the Father, but in Psalm 22, he shows us that um, that joy, starting in verse 25, that he would praise God in the great congregation, and in Hebrews chapter, um, yeah, I don't remember the chapter, but in the book of Hebrews, he makes the comment that Jesus um, had sung praise in the great congregation talking about the church. that, and, and I think that's what he's talking about here. He's looking forward to the day of the church. He's not just speaking about the, the Jewish people, um, but thinking about the church. He says the meek will eat and be satisfied. Um, their hearts would live forever. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the gospel here. He's looking forward to the church and to the church preaching the gospel um, look at verse 27, all the ends of the, the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. So there would be people from every nation that would put their faith in Christ, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Isn't that interesting? The kingdom is the Lord's. Well, what is talked about so much in the Gospels? The kingdom over and over in the Gospels, um, I, largely in the Gospel of Matthew, a lot is said about the kingdom. 
Um, but look down. So he's looking forward to this time when the gospel is going to be preached. Verse 30, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. Now, declaring his righteousness, yes. But the final part of this statement tells us what was going to be preached. What's going to be preached? He said they're going to be declaring that he hath done this. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word for that word done here in our King James Bible, the word literally means finished, completed. What he's saying here is that future generations are going to go out and preach that it is finished. Well, what did Jesus say here right before he died? He says, it is finished. So in Psalm 22, what was David talking about? That the day was going to come that believers would be going around the world preaching to the nations that it is finished. It's accomplished. It's done. What's done? Salvation has been paid for. The sacrifice is made. And Jesus realizes that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that um, that, that meet in him and that meet at redemption at at his crucifixion, all of those things are being accomplished here. Our salvation is paid for. He says, it is finished. That's why we refer to salvation or, or what happens here on the cross rather as the finished work of Christ on the cross, that Jesus has paid for our sin. Hudson Taylor got saved laying on the hay in his dad's barn, reading a gospel track, The title of it was, It Is, or no, The Finished Work of Christ on the Cross was the title of the track. And that title just, it smote his heart. He realized, I don't have to try to work. I don't have to pray enough. I don't have to get anything right. It's already been gotten right for me. Jesus paid for my sin. And that brought such peace to Hudson Taylor. And then he went out fulfilling prophecy of Psalm 22, preaching the gospel in China. what was he preaching? The finished work of Christ on the cross. It is finished. And Jesus bows his head and he gave up the ghost. So we find the death of Christ here, but but let's let's keep reading. It, It goes a little deeper. In verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, the day they're getting ready for the Sabbath, Um, that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. For the Sabbath day was a high day. It's a special festival day during um, the Passover. Um, And some believe that this high day, this Passover day, was actually, um, you know, a Sabbath during Jewish holidays can happen on days other than Saturday. There are special Sabbaths that happen even Passover, if Passover falls on the Jewish calendar, because our calendar is different than the Jewish calendar, right? And so if it falls on a different day, they may have two Sabbaths in one week. You have the Saturday Sabbath, but then you've also got a special Sabbath that has to do with their festival. Some believe that the festival that he's talking about here, that the Sabbath, this was one of the years that would have two Sabbaths that um, they would have 
that Thursday would have been the Sabbath, that Jesus actually died on Wednesday, then he would have been in the grave three days and three nights, as the scripture said. Um, and so Good Friday, Jesus was already dead and had been in the grave. But um, that Jesus actually died on Wednesday, this high Sabbath, or this high day, this, um, this Sabbath day was actually on the Thursday. Whatever the case is, they're in a hurry to get him in the ground because they got to get ready for Passover. And if y'all remember, when we looked at the trial of Jesus before um, Pilate and all these questions that Pilate had, um, they wanted Jesus to hurry up and be crucified. And they wouldn't even come into Pilate's courtroom because they said, oh, we can't defile ourselves. It was, they were so religious about Passover, yet they're denying the Passover lamb himself. They're rejecting Christ and they're just bloodthirsty. They want him dead. But now it's preparation day and these bodies are hanging here. Jesus and the, the two criminals are hanging here on the cross. They need to get this over with. They need to get them dead fast. Of course, Jesus has already said he's dead, but um, they're wanting to get them down so that they can get ready for Passover. And look what it says next. Um, so because of this, um, beside, they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So apparently they could go up, and when a crucifixion was taking place, if they would break the legs of the people that were crucified, it would cause them to suffocate, because now no longer can their legs support anything. They're going to be dead weight hanging on the cross. And so they want this to happen quickly so that the deaths can be fast, because no telling how long they could hang there. Somebody could hang in this condition for quite a while before dying. And so they said, go break their legs so that we can get them buried and have Passover tomorrow. And in verse 32, then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, it is finished. He gave up the ghost. And when they get to him, they find he's already dead. Uh, look what it says next, though. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. Now, now let's go back really quickly. Um, well, no, let, let's stop here. Look what he says. John says, why is he recording this? First, he's testifying what, what I'm saying here is true. We've seen it with our own eyes. But he said, why am I telling you what I'm telling you? Oh, what's the whole point of the Gospel of John? He said that ye might believe. Well, now he gets to the end of the crucifixion story, and he said, by the way, right in the middle, I think this is interesting, he inject, he sticks this in right in the middle of talking about um, the legs being broken. He says, I'm telling you this so that ye might believe. The reason why the crucifixion account is given here is to increase our faith to increase pistis, which is that Greek word for faith. 
And the word believe is used over and over here in the Gospel of John, showing active faith, that we're placing our faith in Christ. We're believing in Christ. And he said that these things were done, verse 36, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. And this was the Scripture, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another Scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, to find these verses, we have to go back to the second to last book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Zechariah. Let's look back there real quick. Zechariah chapter 12. <clears throat> Chapters 12 and 13 are where these verses are found that John says were fulfilled here. And it's interesting because the full fulfillment of chapters 12 and 13 won't happen until a future time when Jesus returns and Israel once again sees their Messiah, who they previously had crucified. But look what it says, um, Zechariah 12 and verse 10, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And if you look down in verse number um, 13 and verse 6, and one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Um, so, the day will come where these will be fulfilled in a different way. But according to the New Testament here, according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these began being fulfilled when Jesus was crucified. And they looked on him whom they pierced. Look also in uh, Psalm 34. <clears throat> Psalm 34 is where we find the prophecy about his bones not being broken. Psalm 34 and verse number 20. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. And so we find that these were Old Testament prophecies partially fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. His bones wouldn't be broken. They would look on him. They would gaze at the one that they had crucified. So we've looked at his belongings, his beloved, his depletion, his decease, <clears throat> and now his body. <clears throat> we begin reading in the verse 38, what are they going to do with him now that he's dead? And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. You know, sometimes we try to judge someone else's faith um, sometimes we try to judge the Christianity of another, and we decide there's no secret disciples, therefore this man can't be saved. And if we were judging um, Joseph of Arimathea, we would probably say the same thing. This man can't be saved. He was a secret disciple. Yet the Apostle John, who lived many years beyond these events, when he records about Joseph of Arimathea, he said he was the believer. It was a secret. <clears throat> because 
he knew he would get kicked off of the, he was a, um, a member of the Sanhedrin, I believe. And um, they believe that Joseph of Arimathea later became a missionary. Obviously, he didn't stay secret. Um, but um, he went into Europe, probably, preaching the gospel. Um, some believe he went, I believe it was as far as Scotland. Um, anyway, I heard once that uh, I actually saw in a documentary um, that some believe that he actually founded the first Bible college. Um, I actually started a Bible school in possibly Scotland, I believe it was, um, training Christian workers um, to preach the gospel. Regardless of the fact, here we have Joseph of Arimathea. He shows up. He's pleading for the body of Jesus. He wants to take it and bury it. <clears throat> um, let's see. Later in 38, it says, And Pilate gave him leave. He allowed him to do it. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. Now, verse 39, we see another wealthy man that shows up on the scene who has been a, um, a secret follower of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. So these two wealthy men show up. One appeals to Pilate for the body of Jesus to bury it. He has a place he can bury him. Nicodemus shows up with the these... Um, this mixture of oils and aloes to be able to um, take care of the body of Jesus and basically um, a type of embalming type of process. I mean, they're not literally um, going to embalm the body here, but they're going to wrap the body and they're going to put these, um, these things around the body of Christ. In verse 40, then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now, um, well, let me put my last slide up here. We're going to look at the verse in just a moment in Isaiah. But Isaiah 53 said that he would be buried with the rich. Well, who is the rich? Oh, Joseph of Arimathea is going to take him. He's going to bury him. And, of course, Nicodemus, another wealthy um, influential um, Jewish man taking him and they're burying him, putting him in the tomb. And verse 42, there laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. They didn't have time to take him anywhere else. Um, this is close by. And so they very quickly take him and they put him in the garden tomb. I don't think I read verse 34. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. Isn't that interesting? God had a tomb prepared for his son, a tomb that was unused, um, that was available for his burial. Now let's look back at Isaiah 53 as we come to a conclusion of this this morning. Isaiah 53 had given some detail 
not necessarily details about the crucifixion, but had given a beautiful description of the crucifixion and of the Lamb of God being slain. Let's look here. Isaiah 53, uh, beginning at verse number one. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And it's interesting, as Isaiah is writing to Jewish people, that he's talking about how they as a people would look at Jesus. And honestly, I mean, how we as sinners look at Jesus. But in his lifetime, how were they looking at him? He says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. That he's someone that God forsook, that God has, God's just reached back and backhanded him. Or rather, we might say God punched him in the face. I mean, they're looking at Jesus as someone who God is disdaining. And so he, he says, well, and afflicted. We're looking at him as an afflicted man. That was not looking at him in a good light. They didn't see Jesus as lovely. They didn't see him as beautiful. They didn't worship him as Savior. In verse number five, but, this is how we looked at him, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So he says all of this, all of his death was for our benefit. Yet he said we looked at him as someone who was rejected by God. I mean, look at it. If he's looking at someone who's been smitten by God, they're really looking at Christ as an enemy of God. And yet, while they're looking at him in this way, he was dying for their sins. He was providing their healing. He was taking their place on the cross. It's like the, the, the illustration that I often use in Bible clubs. I'll get John, um, Josiah and James up in front of the kids, and I'll tell this elaborate story about um, <clears throat> how that their mom was left, left the house one day, and um, she told them to finish their schoolwork, and she goes out of the house, and James picks up his basketball and puts his schoolwork to, uh, aside, and Josiah's sitting there being a good kid and doing his homework, but James, he would rather play his basketball. Now, he knows he's not supposed to bounce it in the house, but he did it anyway, so he goes around bouncing it around the house, and then all of a sudden, he thinks, I'm going to bounce against the wall. Boom! Oh, boy, that was fun. Oh, look at all the pictures shake, and he does it again. Anyway, he knocks um, a big old picture off the wall and busts it and sticks it behind the TV cap. 
cabinet. While he's doing that, he bumps the TV cabinet, knocks the TV off, and he sticks it back up and turns it on, and Andy Griffith, his face is like this. His forehead's over here, and his mouth's over here. I mean, he looks really funny, and Anyway, well, then he's trying to get it all cleaned up, and he knocks over this big expensive vase, and I mean, he's just making a mess. He brushes all that under the TV cabinet and closes the TV cabinet, and he hears somebody at the door, and he sits down and starts doing his math again. Well, it's Mama at the door, and Mama comes in, and she says, where's that picture that was hanging right there? James says, I don't know. she, She said, well... Why is the TV cabinet shut? And she opens it up and turns it on, and Andy Griffith's forehead's over here, his mouth's over here. She says, what happened to the TV? He said, I don't know. And then um, she notices the vase is gone. She said, what happened to my vase? Well, I don't know. Josiah must have done it. And then she tells him, son, I was, and so I always ask the kids, I said, what did he do wrong? They oh, instantly, you know, they start listing all the things he did. And usually a kid, one of the kids gets it right up front. He disobeyed. Well, how did he disobey? He played basketball. What should he have been doing? Anyway, so we go through the whole thing. Again, reviewing what James did wrong. And then we get to that point. And I said, well, now what did he do? They say, he lied. He blamed it on his brother. Well, then mom said, you're getting a whooping. And so mom bends James over, and I'll take off my belt sometimes. Just All the kids go like this. They think I'm actually going to use it on James. And I pull back that belt to use it, and then Josiah grabs my arm. And I tell the kids, Josiah said, no, mom, don't spank James. Spank me instead. All the kids just burst into laughter usually, or gasp, one or the other, depending on how dramatic they are. And, um, and some of them are going, no, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But Josiah said, spank me instead. Well, why? He deserves it. But I love my brother, and I don't want him to get a spanking. Spank me instead. So mom lets James go free and tells Josiah to bend over. And, of course, I usually bring back the belt and pretend I'm spanking James, and he pretends he cries, and, or Josiah, rather. He pretends he cries, and then I have him sit down, and I tell the kids that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took our spanking. What we deserved, he took, and we get to go free. And Isaiah says this is what Jesus was doing for us. Our ch- the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And it it goes even a little further now with that illustration. And and I've done this before with the kids. Well, when I can sense that there are kids that are rejecting Christ or mocking, then I say, what if James turns around and spits in Josiah's face? And says, that was stupid, brother. Why would you do something so stupid to get my whooping? Mom, give me one anyway. I don't care. Of course, usually that's quite distressing. Something so ridiculous that he would spit in the face of his brother who just took his spanking. But when we reject Christ, that's what we're doing. We're doing something far greater. And Isaiah is describing the condition of Israel, that that's what they would be doing as Christ was bearing their iniquities. Yet they were rejecting him. He was oppressed, verse 7, Sorry, look back at verse 6. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his she- her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. There's Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord Jesus, we thank you for suffering for our sins, for taking our iniquities, and while we didn't deserve it. And Lord, even those of us who were saved so often live like we don't care. Lord, we are so grateful that you loved us. Grateful that you took our iniquities upon yourself. We're grateful that you died in shame. that you suffered in open shame so that we could experience redemption, so that we could experience glory with you one day. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to live in the light of the cross, remembering all that you have suffered to pay for our sins. We thank you that John recorded these events so that our faith in you would grow. Lord, I pray that you would help us to meditate on the cross this week. And Lord, that, um, Lord, you would just soften our hearts, make us more like your son, more willing to pour out ourselves for others. Lord, I thank you again for dying for us, for providing us redemption and salvation on the cross. Pray that you'd bless Pastor as he preaches here in a little bit, and that you'd be honored and glorified through the music and this, Lord, the singing and lifting up your name. Lord, we thank you for all you've done for us. Pray that you'd help us to be faithful to preach the cross, that we would be those people that were prophesied in Psalm 22, that we would declare that it is finished. We thank you for paying for our sins. In Christ's name we pray, amen.